Please open in your Bibles to the book of James. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, that is page 1013. And I will be reading verse 12 in the ESV version. That is the version I will be preaching from. So James chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word, I pray, Lord God, that you would pour out your spirit on us. I pray that you would empower the spirit Empower your word by your spirit, Father, that it would go into the depths of our hearts, that it would affect our affections, that we would be drawn in closer affection and love for you, that we would see our sin more clearly and come to you for forgiveness. And rejoice, Father, that we receive that forgiveness in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that you would do this mighty work here and now. In Christ's precious name, amen. So perhaps you are familiar with the story of the boy who cried wolf. He was a shepherd boy uh, who amused himself by pretending that a wolf was attacking. He would cry wolf to his family and friends, and they would come out armed to the gills to the pasture to fight a wolf that wasn't there. Well, the child found this incredibly amusing, and he would have a good laugh at their expense. Of course, that is, until a wolf actually showed up. And he cried, wolf, wolf, and no one listened. They assumed he was playing a game again. And subsequently, the sheep were all eaten. And in some version of the story, the boy himself was eaten because of his lies. See, this is a simple tale that we tell to our children. Yeah, in its simplicity, ex- expresses something that is deeply important to the Christian life. The truth. And I don't mean by the truth uh, the correct knowledge about God, the world, and the Bible. Uh, but the moral quality of, be- of being people who tell the truth. Those who don't obfuscate reality through exaggeration, minimization, backpedaling, manipulation, deflection, humor, or outright lies. And certainly, the, the truth means people who keep their words. Scripture declares that God takes truth very seriously. Consider what Psalm 12.22 says. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Now in the book of James, he has dealt much with the subject matter of how we use our tongues. James has said that the tongue is a world of evil. It is an uncontrolled flame that, if left unchecked, can set a whole life on fire. And if really left unchecked, will be set on fire by hell eventually. In particular, James is speaking out in this book against how we use our tongues against one another, how we lash out at one another, how we grumble. He asks this question, how can a believer bless God with their tongue, and curse their brethren at the same time? How can one spring produce two types of water? Can a spring produce fresh water and salt water? No. So one source cannot produce both blessing and curse. So which one is true? And which one is most likely a facade if we think both, if we are 
uh, in the practice of producing both out of our mouth. Well, the truth of the matter is the blessing of God is likely a facade if we are cursing our neighbor. Because you can say something with your lips and not mean it in your heart. And that is the point of James' message in chapter 2, that if you say you have faith, but genuinely don't have any love for God, do you really love him? Do you really, if you're not, if your faith isn't producing works in your life, if there's no fruit, is that faith true? He says no. So the mouth that produces both blessings and curse is lying one way or the other. And then there's a question of which one is becoming to the people of God. Now, as James is wrapping up his epistle, he turns once again to the subject of the tongue. And it would seem that this is a subject of some importance. He begins with the phrase, above all. Above all, do not swear, either by heaven or earth, or any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no. So as we seek to control our tongues, do not forget to be, uh, to be honest. Do not forget to be a person of your word, to deal fairly. And this here, if this, these words that James speaks here sound familiar to you, well, good. Uh, these are most likely a quotation of something Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel. In a popular, in a, a common, um, in, a, in a series of messages called the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5 to 7. Now, why does James say above all? Why is this so important that he uses this modifier? Well, to understand this, we should look at the context of the whole Bible concerning the subject of oaths. What does the law say? And we should also look at what Jesus says, and we should also consider the practices of the day that made Jesus' words necessary. First, uh, let's start with the law itself, Exodus 27. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. And oftentimes we think that this is referring to using God's name as a profanity. And while it is, there's more to it. Leviticus 19.3 expounds on this a bit more. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So you see there was a concern for those who were taking oaths on the name of God not, and not fulfilling them. It was likely that these were, this is referring to oath-taking with, that never, had an, a, um, never was planning on fulfilling it. They used the name of God to further some end. They made a promise or a vow to save face or to get someone to do what they want, but never had any intention of fulfilling their oaths. And God says here that he will not hold the people who use his name in such a way, guiltless. However, we also see that there is not a blanket ban on oaths in Scripture. In fact, there were oaths that were prescribed by the law. A good example was if a man gave his ox to another as a, um, collateral, and the ox died, the man was to swear an oath that he did not kill the ox before the Lord. And what the purpose of that was if the man actually did kill the ox and he was being called to swear an oath, he would think twice before lying. God himself even makes oaths. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about this, that God swore an oath to Abraham in order so that Abraham would know that God would fulfill his promises. 
And one, there is also a concern that they were not, Israelites were not to take on oath or make an oath with any other witness on their oath or promise besides God himself. This is what it says in Deuteronomy. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So to swear by anything else, what does that mean? If we, are to swear, if we swear on anything but God himself, we are calling on something else as a divine witness. We're saying that something else can see what I'm doing, can know the intention of my heart, and can keep track of me. So to swear on your mother's grave or to swear on the life of my child is to call the life of your child or your mother's grave as a witness to what you're doing. And that is, in a sense, idolatry because we're saying something else is the arbiter and judge over us besides God himself. So that is why Deuteronomy here says, do not swear by anything besides the name of your Lord. No other God, nothing else in creation. So with all that in mind, uh, that oaths made to the name of the Lord are to be fulfilled and not forgotten, that they are to swear nothing besides the name of their God, with that in mind, let us look at what Jesus says. As I mentioned, Jesus, uh, James is quoting Jesus from the Sermon of the Mount, and that is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. And he says the following, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, at first glance, this may seem to contradict the Old Testament law, but we have very good reason to be certain that it doesn't. First, we have to remember what Jesus said at the beginning of this section in his sermon. He says, I have not come to, uh, to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he declares that not one part of the law will be, dist- will be taken away. It was all eternal. And it's also important to note that Jesus, usually when he quotes scripture, he says the formula, it is written, the phrase, it is written. But notice here that Jesus says something different. He, has, he says, you have heard it said. And typically what Jesus means, well, always what Jesus means when he's doing this is he's not quoting the law. He is quoting traditional teaching that were surrounding the commandments. So uh, the traditions of the Pharisees, the teachings that they said, that they had about the law, he is quoting that, which has been their tradition for a while, and he's correcting it. Because if you, if you are familiar with this, many of these traditions have strayed away from the true nature and understanding of the law. They have not realized that the law is a matter of the heart, but turned it only into a matter of outside uh, appearance. And they also, a lot of these traditions made keeping the letter of the law important, but ignored the spirit of it. Or to put it another way, uh, these traditions provided provision for paying lip service to God and his law without any real devotion or love for God himself. 
So regarding oaths, it is clear that to break an oath sworn by the name of God is sin. So what did the Pharisees do? Well, they made layers of acceptable oaths that are binding and oaths that are not. They said, well, if you don't want to keep an oath, but you don't want to um, swear by the name of the Lord, swear by something else. Swear by heaven. Swear by the temple. Swear by to Jerusalem, but not at Jerusalem. Because if you swear to Jerusalem, then you can break, break your law. That's not as binding as swearing at Jerusalem. These were actual traditions. So what these did was give people enough wiggle room to get out of be keeping, to allow them to keep the law and save face, to keep it at the surface, but to avoid any unnecessary inconveniences while doing so. We find similar practices in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 to 22. And this here Jesus is speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So you see here, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying that any word given, any promise made, no matter what you swear on, is a promise you are bound to keep. The heaven is God's throne. The earth is its footstool. All that you do before the presence of God is seen. There is no escape. There are no loopholes. There are no escape clauses. But Jesus says, why make an oath? Why not just simply be a person of such integrity that when you say yes, people know that it is yes. And when you say no, people know that it is no. You see, oaths were meant as a pledge before God of service and goodwill. They were for particular circumstances. We take oaths here, oaths for church membership, oaths for service and ordination. But in our sin, we have turned them into tools for manipulation or necessity in communities of liars. I think about the child who, upon promising that he is telling the truth, has his Fingers crossed behind his back. Because he doesn't want to tell the truth, but he's stuck. So what does it say about a community or a person when they constantly need to give pledges of their truthfulness? What does it say about a community or a person when the only way to get someone to do something is to pull an oath out of them like a tooth? It is a community that lacks love. Love for God first, then love for others. As I said to the children today, sin is the opposite of the love of God. It is idolatry. It is putting self as the greatest source, as the greatest um, object in our life. Fealty to self before fealty to God or others. 
So do you see why this is such an important issue to James? It is because the reason he says, above all, keep your oaths. Above all, do not swear in these, in these uh, uh, weird manners. Do not swear in a false way. Because it is really, at its core, an issue of genuine faith and devotion to God. So like all issues, as I said, of, foundation, of right and wrong, the fundamental question is, who do you serve? Who do you love the most? Sure, the Pharisees, they looked like they were righteous, they looked like they were keeping the law, but as we have heard, Jesus said that they were hypocrites. They put on a good show. They were a tomb that was painted to look pretty, but was full of dead things on the inside. And sure, we could, we could turn this, boil this down to just nothing more than, oh, I don't take oaths. But there's something deeper here. James is saying that above all, your devotion to God must come out in your faithfulness, to your, in your word, and in your conduct. But when our word is unreliable, when our conduct is unreliable, when we lack integrity, reliability, commitment, truthfulness, when people cannot be trusted, who are we showing that we really love? If you are someone who is always hemming and hawing about your commitment, who do you love? If you can't take, if people can't take you at your word or rely on you to do what you say, who do you love? If you refuse to commit to anything, who do you, are you loving? If you are the master manipulator, prone to make grand promises or flattering words in order to get what you want, who are you really loving? If you are prone to exaggeration or minimization or blame shifting in order to make yourself look better and someone else look bad, who are you loving? Proverbs twenty six eighteen says this, A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Again, the person who is not able to keep their word or not willing to, they are loving themselves more than anything. Oh, they're com- they can be committed, but that commitment has to benefit them in some way. It is a commitment of self. So the question is, who are you committed to? Who is your ultimate commit- commitment in life? Are you willing to keep your word to honor and love God and to serve your brethren, even if it hurts? Or is your greatest fealty to yourself? And so that whatever serves that end is the truth. I think of Pontius Pilate. Jesus said he came to testify to the truth. And Pontius Pilate, being a good politician, he didn't understand that. He's like, well, what is truth? Because to him, truth was whatever was expedient. So as I mentioned A lot of the traditions of the Pharisees involved uh, the provision of loopholes and escape clauses, provisions for making unbinding oaths, rules that would get you out of um, things that you want, sorry, rules that could allow you to get away with things. And it would appear that the Pharisees were master escape artists. Think of the example that I just gave. Well, he didn't swear by the temple. He, swore, he didn't swear by the uh, things on the altar. He swore by the altar, so that's not binding. He doesn't have to keep his word. Or consider 
this despicable example. These are the words of Jesus, again to the Pharisees, concerning their commandments, their traditions versus God's commandment. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. That's Matthew fifteen three to 6 Can you believe that? These people claiming to be servants of God would say, well, I serve God, not you. I'm going to give what I would have needed to give to you, to him. Do we think that this is worship? Do we think that this is devotion? Do we think that living as if the law of God was some kind of uh, contract in which we find loopholes and clauses, do we think that that is a heart of love for God? Do we think God will be pleased with such things? No. Now, we may not be so blatant in our lives, but how do we do this? Do we have any forms of this in the way we live now? Well, uh, maybe you have never said to your parents, whatever I I would have given to you, I'm going to give to the church. But have you ever said or heard someone say something like this? The Bible doesn't say, I can't do it. What's wrong with such a statement? Well, more often than not, a statement like this is made in the context of someone looking for justification for questionable actions. Because they really want to do it, and they need some way to justify it. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about living together with my girlfriend out of marriage, so... The Bible doesn't condemn it. Of course, the truth of the matter is, the statement, the Bible doesn't say I can't do it, is usually the fruit of very little Bible study. Because the truth is, there's no aspect of life that the Bible does not address. This is really the heart of someone who is looking for an excuse and is willing to not look very far to find it. The Pharisees did not understand that obedience is a matter of devotion. The affection of the heart is not a cold business transaction with God. And if we say something like, the Bible doesn't say I, don't have, I can't do it, we're basically saying the same thing. We're saying, I'm looking for something I can get away with. Because ultimately, the love of God is not a priority to me. Sure, he's there, but it's kind of an inconvenience, because I really would like to do something. And let's see, how can I get away with it? Have we ever thought that way? Have we ever said anything like that? Well, then we are following under the same issues that James is addressing, that Jesus addressed with the Pharisees. Consider an example. Consider a dating couple. They're talking to a pastor about the wisdom and propriety of a Christian dating relationship, and the subject turns to physical intimacy. And one of them, I'm guessing it's going to be the guy, asks, how far can we go? What is the problem with this question? Well, the answer is, if you have asked such a question, you have already gone too far. Why? Because you're saying, what can I get away with? They didn't ask, how can I honor God the most in my relationship? 
They're saying, how far can I get to the edge before I fall off? How can I get away with what I really want to do and still look like a Christian? How can I escape on a technicality? How can I do the bare minimal that is, requ- that is required of me by Christ and my church to still look like a Christian? Do you see how terrible this is? Imagine if your spouse said to you, how much flirting can I do before you get jealous? Or imagine a parent saying, how, much, how long can I go without feeding my children before it counts as abuse? Would you trust a parent with that child? Would any of these things be mistaken for love? No. Then why do we think that God would mistake any such behavior towards him and others as genuine love? Why do we fool ourselves into thinking that this is love? So I hope you see why this issue is given the weight of prime importance by James. It is an issue of integrity. It is an issue of truthfulness and reliability. And at its core, it is an issue of ultimate devotion. So what about you? What is your reliability? What does your truthfulness say about your heart? Are you devoted to Christ or yourself? Are you a man who, or woman who always keeps your word even if it hurts? Or are you like a worm wriggling on a piece of cardboard? Hard to pin down. Jesus says that our words are the outflow of our hearts. And he also says something very harrowing about the consequences of our words. Again, this is Matthew's gospel. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, if you're familiar with the book of James, that word justify should stick out. Because James has talked about how a man is not justified by faith alone, but by his works. What Jesus and James are talking about is not the justification that we have before God, where we are declared righteous in Christ. That is only by faith. He is saying that faith is proven to be genuine by what it produces in our lives. Whether that is our actions or our words. If you have an orange tree, or what you think is an orange tree, and it produces lemons, the fruit is justifying that it's actually a lemon tree. If you are claiming to be a Christian, but do not live and speak in love for God and one another, what is that saying about you? The true nature of something will always come out at the end. God will see it. God will bring it to light. Everything that is in darkness will be brought to light. And that is why James here says, he warns us that against this brand of oath-taking and thinking before, about God, he says, don't make oaths by heaven or earth, but just be men of your word, lest you fall under judgment. So is your faith genuine? Or are you putting on a show? Are you really seeking to serve God or yourself? And which one will be revealed when Christ returns or you stand before him? That is a question we all must ask ourselves. Now, if you're still prone to wonder why the truth is so important, let's think about the reliability of God. How reliable is God? 
Is he very reliable? Yes. God is, God's, is uh, his word is, uh, is law. If he says he will do it, he will do it. God does not play word games with us. He does not make a promise and then cross his finger behind his back. God's promise took Jesus, in his faithfulness, Jesus went to a cross of wood on which he was nailed for the sins of his people. Though Jesus was in anguish, though he sweat great drops of blood, he still said to the Father, not my will not be done, but yours. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promise. There is no promise that God has not kept. Jesus is the yes and amen of every promise God has ever made. Listen to this from the law. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Brethren, this is why truth matters. This is why being a person of faithfulness matters. Because God is immeasurably faithful. Christ is immeasurably faithful. And if we want to be called God's children, then we are called to follow in suit. Now let's imagine the unthinkable. Let's imagine something that would never happen for a moment. Imagine you got to heaven, having trusted in Christ, and are standing before the great white throne covered in his blood, and God says to you, well, we didn't pinky swear on it. Would you be okay with that? Would you say, oh, you got me, as you plummeted to hell? That would be horrendous. That is not even something worth thinking about. But I bring it up to show us just how important the truth is. If God were not faithful, he would not be God. That is how important this matter is. So then why, oh why, brethren, do we live as if truthfulness and faithfulness and reliability was an optional conduct in the Christian life? Behold, you delight in truth in the inward beings, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That is Psalm 51.6. God calls us to be a people of our word. When we say yes, it is a true yes. When we say no, it is a true no. How can we be satisfied with anything less than, the complete, than complete faithfulness to he whose faithfulness never wavers? Now, if you're like me, you're probably feeling a bit uh, of, of the burn of guilt right now. Because <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, none of us has been fully faithful in all of our lives. <clears throat> so what do we do? What do we do now that we have seen just how unfaithful we can be in all of our conduct? Well, we rely, again, on God's faithfulness. His faithfulness in Jesus Christ. John says in his epistle, one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brethren, we don't want to sin. We should abhor sin. We should run from it. But John says, if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. 
not just our sins, but for all the sins of all who believe in him. This word propitiation is another way of saying that Jesus in his death on the cross turns aside the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. So do you see how important faithfulness is? How important being men and women of our word is? Where would we be without God's faithfulness? Without, where would our hope be without his, this glorious attribute of God's holy character? It is because God is unchanging and eternally faithful that we have any hope for all eternity. It is because God has promised and cannot lie that all who believe in Jesus will find forgiveness for their sins. So how is Jesus calling you today to be faithful in all of your conduct in light of his immeasurable faithfulness for you? How is he calling you to be a person of your word, to keep your oaths, to not be hard to pin down, to make commitments, and to make the ultimate commitment to him? Brethren, let us live as those who have experienced God's infinite faithfulness. Let us emulate in our lives so so that God's let us emulate it in our lives so that God's faithfulness in Christ would be celebrated and glorified. For we are image bearers of Christ. We are his ambassadors on earth. What would you rather hear? You can't believe anything those Christians say. They never keep their word. Or would you rather hear someone say, even if they say it grudgingly, well, if he said it, you can take his word for it. He is a Christian after all. Which one glorifies God the most? Which one are we going to proclaim as the character of our God in our lives now? Brethren, let us be people of our word so that the world, whole world would see that God is a God of his word and that his word is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you who are infinitely faithful, you who have never gone back on your word, you who have said it and done it, you who have given us the yes and amen in Jesus Christ, God, we give you praise today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you never go back on your word. Oh, Lord, this is our infinite hope, the certainty and unchangeableness of God. We thank you, Father, that you do not lie. We thank you that you will do all that you have said and that you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. May we who have here, sat here hearing your word today, may we who have put our faith in Christ Jesus be so that faithful to the world around us. May we emulate Christ. May we glorify your faithfulness in all of our conduct. May we do this and show forth the light that you have caused to shine in your church. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.